lie that poetry tells Is constant as the truth itself Without the lies and the false beliefs Where would we be? Where would we be? Welcome to the State of the Theory podcast. I'm Hannah. And I'm in India. And we are your theory doctors. Welcome back. Hello there. Um, this is our second episode on our brand new equipment. Yay! Ta-da! Um, yeah, once again, thank you, University of St. Andrews, um, for your generous uh, grant. I would call it a donation, but it's not really a donation, is it? No. What is really interesting as well is the equipment is available to colleagues. Yes. As well. So, um, and we are interested in sharing and supporting colleagues. Yes, we are are not good capitalists. So uh, anyone who's listening, especially if you're from the University of St. Andrews, if you are interested in making podcasts, if you make podcasts already, then uh, feel free to use our machine. If you uh, would like to come and talk to us on our podcast, then we are. Always uh, looking for uh, guests. Volunteers. Volunteers. Guinea pigs. Yeah. Um, And as Hannah mentioned uh, before, we can um, now have guests on the phone. Exciting times here. So what are we talking about today, Hannah? Well, you know, this is dispatches from Brexit land. Yeah. At the moment. Today is, I think it's important that we mention today's date. Today is the 30th of August. 2019. Yes. What hap- What's happening today? What's happening today? Well, yesterday, Wednesday. It was Wednesday. Um, we woke up to the news that the government, the government is planning to prorogue parliament, which those are all meaningless words unless you understand or are familiar with the British political system and the British government. We've talked a little bit before about the differences between the parliamentary system here and the presidential system in the United States. I still get confused. When British people say the government, they they mean essentially the closest equivalent to the cabinet and the executive branch. They don't That's what they should mean. I think they mean parliament as well. I mean, parliament isn't government. But they don't always. So in this context, when they say government is going to prorogue, and we'll get to that word in a Mm. second, is going to prorogue parliament, it's not parliament together with the cabinet all getting together and deciding something as the government as a whole. It's that the government means something more specific. So the the government is typically the party that has the largest number of MPs in parliament, assuming there is a party that has the largest number of MPs in parliament. Uh, It's the government's job to introduce legislation. The government decides the order of business for parliament, typically. Um, The government introduces legislation. Parliament votes on legislation. If Parliament passes legislation, then the legislation is signed by the by the Crown, by the monarch. Um, so those are sort of the three uh, major um, facets or three major participants, yeah. stakeholders uh, in the legislative process. Yes. Um, the government, you can think of the government as the executive in, in some senses, except the executive and the legislature sit together. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the government, in this case, headed by 
our wonderful Prime Minister, Mr. Boris Johnson. Yay! Um, has announced that he is proroguing Parliament. In other words, he is closing Parliament down in advance of a new Parliament recession. Typically, this will hap- This happens every year. So there's a and it doesn't need elections. So a, a session in Parliament is brought to a, brought to a close. The next session starts with the Queen's speech, where where the Queen reads the speech that has been written for her by her government, and uh, that sets out the government's legislative agenda for the Parliament that's coming. Um, government can do that whenever it wants. So in in terms of constitution, as far as I can gather, I'm no expert. But this is not particularly unprecedented. It's not particularly controversial, even. What is controversial is how long the proroguing period is lasting. In other words, the gap in time between when Parliament is suspended and when it is reconvened is much longer than it has been historically. And, of course, the fact that all of this is happening in the context of Brexit, which means that unless there is a deal between now and the 31st of October or unless there is an extension that is sought for and granted by the EU, Britain is leaving the European Union without a deal. So uh, the implication here is, and I think this is, for me at least, pretty uh, inarguable, that uh, the reason the government is doing this now is to reduce the amount of time Parliament has in order to try to avoid no deal. Uh, previous, Under the previous government, but the same Parliament, it was clear that there wasn't a majority in Parliament for no deal. Parliament does not want no deal. Um, the government's position at the moment is it doesn't. It would prefer to have a deal, but it is prepared to leave the EU without a deal. Um, and that's the situation we found ourselves in, where apparently, on the face of it, government is bypassing Parliament in order to get what it's what it wants because it doesn't have a big enough majority. Indeed, it doesn't have a majority at all, um, even with external support from from another political party. It only has a majority of one. Um, government isn't able to get parliament to do what it wants to do, and therefore it is bypassing parliament. Fun times. Yes. it's. Um, I had been in a meeting that morning, and I came over here to check out the new equipment, and you asked me if I looked at the news and I was like not yet I haven't looked at the news yet you actually didn't believe me did you I didn't and yeah. you said you said the government is suspending parliament uh, because of course this word proroguing it's not a real it, word it's not a real really, word yeah. it's a technical word yeah. that British bureaucracy has invented um, and it uh, you were like yeah the government's suspending parliament and and I just looked at you and I said you're shitting me that's not actually happening. And you said, no, it is happening. It, it's exactly what's happening. And, of course, the Queen agreed to it. So there's been lots of, as with it, with kind of any Brexit news, social media is both hilarious, depressing, and inaccurate. You know, it's all of these things at once. And so there have been the usual British memes, right? Because British people are hilarious, and they can be very clever in constructing jokes. Um, And so the usual kind of British response to the different aspects of what's going on have have appeared. But of course, as with everything, we think that some of the point has been missed. Um, The the Queen 
has come in for a lot of criticism, of course, um, and also sort of the usual mocking or or disbelief about the the monarchy and the the conditions by which the monarchy still exists. Um, commentary on the fact that there's technically a constitution here, but that it was never written, um, which of course British people have always found hilarious until Wednesday. Um, so in terms of constitutional law here, it's it there is no kind of document that a Supreme Court goes back to and looks at and reads and and edits and debates the way that they do in the United States or in India for that matter. Um, Jacob Rees-Mogg has slithered out of his hole. Um, if you don't know who Jacob Rees-Mogg is, I suggest a quick Google. Um, he he was until very recently a, a backbench MP um, who had sort of marginal support. He's, um, he's often uh, mockingly described as the honorable member for the 19th century. Yeah, he he he's not out of place, you know, wearing a top hat and tails. That's his preferred uniform. But he's now not a backbench MP. He's now the leader of the House, yeah. um, leader of the House of Commons. So it's uh, within parliament, within cabinet, it's, uh, it's a fairly significant position because he's Apart from everything else, he's responsible for liaising between parliament and government, as if if you like. Uh, that's that's I think part of his job. He was has always been a uh, an anti EU figure. Um, he's also kind of pro empire in the sense that um, I think he would like to reestablish aspects of the British Empire in a kind of Trumpian, fantastical way, um, in the sense that it's not possible to do that. <laughs> um, yes, except, I mean, over the last few months, we've seen lots of things that we would have thought were not possible. So, And that are happening. That are happening now. It, yeah, it's interesting, the sort of meteoric rise of the back the backbench Brexit rebels um, within the Conservative Party, which we talked about before um but before boris johnson was officially made the prime minister we had a discussion about um the what was previously the extreme right wing has become the mainstream, mainstream. yeah um yeah so as always you mentioned earlier how social media is sort of hilarious and missing the point uh, and inaccurate at, at in various instances um uh, there have been a number of responses that I've seen to uh, to the the news that Parliament is going to be provoked. Uh, some of which have more merit than others, but none of which is necessarily completely inaccurate. So there is a there is a faction that says this is sort of a storm in a teacup, essentially that government has the power to do this. The Queen was never going to say no because the Queen always acts on the advice of the Prime Minister. All of those things are true. I don't. I. I. I don't think that that that's uh, that's completely uh, inaccurate. There's another uh, group of people, fairly fairly high profile group of people. Uh, Hugh Grant and Stephen Fry have both tweeted uh, in uh, responses to this in this vein that have proceeded to go viral, which is that this is an attack on the great and ancient tradition of British democracy. Uh, 
Britain likes to see itself in some senses as the home of democracy. Uh, the Parliament in London call is is often called the mother of parliaments. Um, you know, it sees itself as one of the longest running continuous seats of democratic government uh, in the world. Uh, we might have different positions about that, uh, about exactly how old British democracy is, exactly what is the point when one identifies the birth of British democracy. If by democracy we mean one person, one vote, for example, universal adult suffrage, then it's not actually as old as everyone seems to think. But but this is part of the argument that Britain, within Britain and abroad, Britain is seen as as uh, the guardian of democracy. And what this what this bypassing of parliament is doing is undermining democracy in a way that is that is seen as as particularly dangerous. Uh, and there is a, a another group uh, wh- wh- which is quite popular on my social media uh, world, if you like, which uh, is arguing that the the steps that the government have taken this year this week, is uh, not illegal, is not unconstitutional, and that is the problem. In other words, the constitutional setup, insofar as we have a setup, is not fit for purpose, and it's, it's fundamentally un- anti-democratic. So rather than trying to reform the government, whether, whether it's parliamentary to, the, the parliamentary seat of government, whether it's the executive seat of government or whether it's the monarchy, uh, we need to revolutionize the democratic structures within the country. And as I said, uh, we we are not, I don't think, arguing that any of these positions are fundamentally inaccurate. Uh, but we have a slightly different take, as we, as we often do on this program. And this connects to something that I've been thinking for some time now, uh, which is, I've I've noticed in in India, in America, in Britain, uh, these are the three three contexts that we know uh, particularly well. Uh, a steady erosion of trust for democratic structures. Uh, in all of these countries, Parliament or its equivalent, the the, the uh, Congress in in America, are probably at in have some of the lowest favorability ratings that they've ever had. And I've been thinking about that a lot over the last couple of days because it seems to me that the if we argue that the, this erosion of trust in democratic structures was not accidental but was deliberately cultivated, then we are getting to a position where the hegemonic powers that be are deliberately undermining public trust in in democracy, essentially in the structures of democracy, the institutions of democracy, so that when they get to a point when it suits their interest to bypass those structures, there is no public outrage. There is a significant proportion of Britain which agrees that proroguing parliament was a good thing, that... No, even if one has to bypass Parliament in order to get a, get a no-deal exit, that is a price worth paying because Parliament is useless. And I've seen that argument being made again and again and again because Parliament has not managed to agree on a deal over the last three years. 
that it's now time to bypass parliament and move around it in order to take back control because of course the Brexit argument was always about taking back control and it raises a interesting and troubling question of the location of sovereignty right if we are bypassing parliament in order to regain sovereign control then where does sovereignty live in a parliamentary democracy yeah who who ultimately makes decisions it's a really interesting conversation that i think is wrapped up in some of our other conversations that are you know related about um the the cultivation of a a distrust of expertise um it it seems that that comes first a distrust of um a kind of intellectual elite or a technocratic elite um both in industry and in the the kind of public research sector but that those that that process comes first and then you replace the expert with the politician that MPs are the elected officials. They are elected and therefore chosen by their constituents to speak for them and they are um, the rightful and legitimate arbiters of decision-making and lawmaking. But then whether it's, I I think it's, you know, a little bit of a conspiracy to argue that it's deliberate and that it's sort of planned out in a back room Mm. Uh, in the White House or, you know, wherever somebody's estate in the country, you know, um, that you'll engender a gridlock amongst the legislative branch. Um, the U.S. Congress, for example, has been plagued by gridlock. No, I mean, for- it's 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 probably right to say that to, to, to say that there is a certainly a, a national or a global conspiracy is overstating the case. But there are moments if you if you use gridlock as an example, there are moments when you see congressional Republicans deliberately using gridlock in their favor. As a strategy, yeah. yeah. So um, throughout the Obama presidency, they've they've used gridlock as a strategy to, to not get things done, knowing that if there is a backlash in terms of public opinion, it's going to fall on the Democrats just as much as them, if not worse, because the public sees the president as the representative of government so so there are certainly moments when you can see elected representatives uh you can see members of the democratic institutions utilizing the the flaws within the structure in order to make short-term gains and not consider any long-term damage that is done to the institutions yeah, but I think the th- where the conspiracy doesn't hold up yeah. is that there isn't an intention to completely destroy the institution quickly. No, no. In the yes. sense that ultimately there are plenty of politicians in their 40s and 50s who if the democratic institutions are undermined so far and so quickly, they will lose their power. Yeah. yeah. Um and and the short-termism isn't necessarily one of completely dismantling the entire system yeah. in order to establish, um, you know, a sh- shadowy oligarchy in the, yeah. you know, some kind of backwater in uh, the Midwest. You know, yeah. it's not like that. 
and it's a bit more mundane. Yeah. I would say. And this comes from Agamben, who we've talked about before. Um a political and social theorist uh who takes the work of Foucault and Hannah Arendt and um work on violence and state violence specifically and extends it a little bit. And one of the things that he says, and we've talked about this before, is that democracy always contains within it the seeds of authoritarianism and that democracy always has the the capacity to undermine itself and essentially exists on a sliding scale, a sort of spectrum that moves between democracy, functioning democracy, high-functioning democracy, and high-functioning authoritarianism, and then everything in between. And that it's a sort of two sides to the same coin. And one of the key features of the transition between democracy into authoritarianism is a halting of an inability for the institutions of democracy to function. Um, And governments always run the risk of moving too far along that that scale that they can't get back onto a they can't move it back to democracy it keeps moving towards authoritarianism and then you end up with a fascist government for a while yeah i mean as as you were saying that i was thinking we we are still acting as if the democratic mandate and authoritarian violence are at different points of the scale so his take is not yeah isn't a distinction between violence and democracy yeah it's a distinction between democracy and authoritarianism and that violence is the common denominator underpinning all of it yeah so i'm um, um, violence was badly phrased there but i mean perhaps perhaps predictably i'm thinking of modi yeah uh, modi has in in any sense that you can judge a democratic mandate Modi has a massive democratic mandate. Yes. And to all by all intents and purposes it looks like he's going to carry on having a massive democratic mandate unless something significant changes. But we would so so what happens when the democratic mandate is for authoritarianism? Well that's the the whole point. Yeah. Is that you can have a democratic mandate for authoritarianism yeah. and that populism as a more as a, a social or cultural phenomenon can affect the political apparatus mm. um, and has the power to move it towards authoritarianism because people, of course, the, the, the fundamental core conundrum within the democratic system is everyone. If everyone is voting for authoritarianism, yeah. It's the will of the people, right? Yeah. And it is always that conundrum at the heart of it. And we work through it in our own minds all the time. And we discuss all the time, do you, do you take the right to vote away from people who are going to vote for an authoritarian government? No, because it undermines democracy. So the... So, and, and this is, this is a, you know, this seems to me the, the question for the age, right? Which is, if you are progressive if you are liberal, if you are left, however you want to define it, and you're a Democrat, then 
we seem to be going through a phase in sort of human history where those two things aren't compatible. Yeah. Because the definitely in India, India is perhaps the the most glaring example of this, but you you have Hungary, you have Brazil, you have Britain, you have America perhaps to a lesser extent but still uh where the the democratic mandate is not just a little bit right wing or a little bit right of center it is so far to the right to be essentially unprecedented in sort of the brief history of democracy that we have so what do you do as a as a person who identifies as left wing but believes in the preservation of some of these democratic structures perhaps yeah i mean it's interesting because um there are a number of left wing figures i'm thinking of jeremy corbyn for example that early on in the brexit debates it was very difficult for jeremy corbyn to reconcile his position as leader of the labor party and and leader of the opposition with his own kind of left wing position that you should break down the eu yeah um that the eu was a a capitalist organization that was above um systems of democracy um and that the EU was a fundamentally um, kind of problematic, exploitative organization. And so his his take, which of course was, you know, forged in the 1970s, yeah. um, was that you undermine the EU. Yeah. But because the pro-Brexit position created itself not in that left-wing anti-state uh, discourse, but created itself rather in a right-wing, pro-state discourse, an anti-immigration, a um, xenophobic f- form of political discourse. The position of the left becomes untenable. You you can yeah you can have a similar comparison here I think uh, with Trump's antipathy towards NATO. Yes. Uh, yes. For you know, for as long as NATO has existed, it has been a target of left-wing attack, uh, as an example of or a tool of principally American but European imperialism around the world. Yeah, and state and, violence. And state violence, and it it is. I mean, the, I don't think we one can really argue against that. But when you are faced with the specter of a Trump, or when you are faced with the specter of a Brexit. Where do you go as a as a left wing person? Do you end up having to support these institutions of power, whether it's national institutions of power like Parliament and Congress, or whether it's supranational institutions of power like NATO and the EU? Because the alternative is worse. Yeah. Um. And what happens to these institutions of power and the way in which, I mean, the the time period that we're talking about is not that long. I mean, the 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 collapse in support for Congress, the collapse in support for Parliament in India and in Britain, 
10 years less maybe yeah probably around the time of the recession yeah it's post-recession and part of that i mean i guess in britain the conservatives won the 2010 election by blaming the recession on the labor party which is a sort of first step to making the government responsible for a global recession which is it was untrue yeah. it was it was like one of the most impressive falsehoods i think of yeah. of the century so yeah. far yeah. and people still remember that they blame gordon brown for the 2008 recession it's interestingly the tories don't really say that anymore they don't i mean maybe they don't feel the need to but that as part of a uh it, it it's lost its presence in in public discourse in Britain, hasn't it? It has. Part of it was that I think it was uh, used as a tool to roll out uh, programs of austerity, and austerity has lost popularity and has technically, um, in name, has come to an end. The government doesn't use the term austerity to describe its economic policy anymore. In practice, it still looks like a conservative economic program which looks a lot like austerity tends to be less government spending um but there definitely was an active attempt to to sow the seeds of active government is bad government because you can't trust the government which is which is why this sort of a plague on both your houses response to government that You know, Labour and Tory are just as bad as, as each other. Um, Democrats, Republicans are just as bad as, as each other. Uh, BJP, Congress, left in India, just as bad as each other. This this rhetoric is, is worse for the left. Yes. The right is always going to do better out of this argument because the right is apparently small government. Yes. Uh, or at least small government in the senses in which government... Is is visib- is most visible if you like to, to do with welfare and you know welfare state and social security and all of those things. Uh, the right might not be small government when it comes to policing and army and 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 the violence of the state, but that that bit of government activity isn't the target of small government no. activists. I'm thinking too. I'm reminded of um, the very horrific murder of the MP Joe Cox um, in the run-up to Brexit. And there were certainly kind of journalists, if there were a few journalists who made it very clear this is not just, you know, an attack on a woman and on an MP who was working on behalf of the left, but also yeah. on behalf of, you know, more specifically yeah. migrants and refugees. Yeah. It was at the, around the time of, um, it was a period where there were significantly high numbers of refugees seeking asylum around Europe. Um, and the the discourse around Brexit had become extremely xenophobic yeah. at the time. Yeah. And, um People said, you know, this isn't just an attack on one MP. This is an attack on Parliament. This is yeah. an attack on the democratic structures yeah. here. And if and um, 
I don't think it was conceptualized in that way at the time, but it certainly seems now. Yeah, yeah and, and it's, I don't think I'd necessarily go so far as to say that public sympathy was undermined because Joe Cox was an MP. You know, the, the, yes. the dislike against politi- politicians haven't hasn't gone reached that effect, no, that no. stage yet. But I certainly don't think that Parliament and her position as an MP made it any easier for the public to coalesce around her murder as a galvanizing moment when Britain could stand against the far right. Yeah. Parliament, because, you know, objectively, if you can be objective about such things, that's what you would you could expect. Yes. That what is and still is electorally a fringe far-right presence, it, certainly in terms of general elections in Britain, should have been decimated, should have been destroyed, because they should have been seen as responsible for an attack on the democratic institutions that make Britain what it is. I'm speaking in cliches deliberately. Yeah. But that that isn't the narrative of parliament we have anymore. No. The narrative of parliament that we have doesn't necess- isn't necessarily conducive to coalescing around an individual MP, no matter how horrific her, her murder was. And I think that deficit in trust, which to my mind has been deliberately constructed maybe not to the conspiratorial ends of bypassing parliament yeah but the the deficit that has been deliberately constructed is absolutely connected to the fact that even though there has been generally speaking widespread uh, uproar against the proroguing of parliament in the way that it was done it somehow still doesn't seem equal to the situation yeah. The response doesn't seem to be as massive as the the moment, if you like. Yeah. Uh because parliament just doesn't work as a rallying call for democracy anymore because people don't believe parliament to be the seat of democracy. Yeah. And we can have an argument about the nature of parliament. We can have an argument about the extent to which we live in a true democracy or not. And those arguments are important to have. But in the same way that Trump's attacks on NATO, if we were to support them, isn't going to help our cause, help the progressive cause, I don't think this undermining of parliament isn't then going to help the progressive cause either. Yeah. there's the, We might have mentioned this in passing on, on a couple of episodes there is a very deep-seated misunderstanding on the left of that that suggests that the bad the worse things get the more likely we are to have revolution yes and that seems to me such a such a fundamental misunderstanding of how revolutions occur yeah. and how social change occurs the the burning down the house if you like isn't or certainly in the way it, it, it would happen if it were to happen today, isn't going to end in a good place. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, the in the United States, we see a really similar discourse as well. And, and a lot of people, especially older people who are, you know, they're baby boomers or kind of older uh, Gen Xers who have memories of 
the activist movements of the 60s and 70s, um, old feminists, you know, second wave feminists who were burning bras in the street. They are expressing disillusionment with the government. Um, you know, people who had formerly believed that they had made significant and um, lasting change in the government, that the government and society could be changed for the better um, because they had proof that they had done it. A lot of those people are now expressing disillusionment and um, dissatisfaction with government to the point where they're behaving in a more apathetic way towards it. They're, you know, they think, not all of them, of course, but a lot of people are not voting as often as they should be. They aren't engaging with local government or um, kind of local organizations or nonprofits in the way that they may have used to. There's a real um, ambivalence towards registering to vote and specifically registering to vote as a particular um, with a particular party, which, of course, in the United States gives you the right to vote in primary elections, which is extremely important in most states. Um, and and it's interesting because the response to Parliament seeming incompetent, and people have said, you know, over the Brexit stuff, Parliament's incompetent. They have been unable to pass Theresa May's deal. They've been unwilling to labor the Labor Party, right, has been unwilling to back any position clearly or strongly, and the position they should be backing, according to who you're speaking to, is different. You know, um, that the the next logical response is, well, Parliament just shouldn't exist. It can't do its job properly, so it shouldn't exist, and we shouldn't be paying any elected officials to do jobs that they can't do. But it doesn't. That just doesn't make sense mm-hmm. logically or rationally. In fact, it's sort of the opposite. It's like oh, Texas is gerrymandered to shit. Maybe we take a look at the legislative and judicial systems that make that possible and we produce some sort of campaign or a grassroots organization that intervenes somewhere along that line and make some sort of change or transition. And we do see some of that happening in certainly in local government or state-level government in the United States. And that movement is generally led by who else? The democratic socialists. Yeah, because I mean, this is this plugs into an idea that that is, uh, it is quite a quite an American brand of conservatism, but it certainly isn't limited to America. the The logical response to gerrymandering, or the logical response to the gridlock in Congress, or the logical response to the corruption in Parliament that you outlined, is only logical if your first principle is government is the basis of democracy yeah if your uh, the first principle is government is the limit point of freedom mm-hmm. in in other words the extent to which we are governed is the extent to which we are not free which is a is a particularly american brand of conservatism yes so i said it's not limited to america then in some senses it is in your interest to govern badly Right, because, as I said, any backlash against government is going to rebound to your benefit, because you believe in bad government. You believe in no government. Yeah, well, and you believe that government is bad, and you believe that government is incompetent, and government is not the best way to get things done, and you shouldn't leave public infrastructure projects in the hands of the government because the government isn't a corporation, and you know, and if you believe that. 
when you're in power, you you exist in a state of contradiction. Which is which is why we see. Again, I'm more familiar with in in this instance. I'm more familiar with the British and, and Indian context. But you see again and again what seems from the outside to be deliberate mismanagement of public resources, whether it's the British railway system, whether it's the Indian railway system, BSNL, which is the Indian telecommunication systems, which is now in in a deep crisis. Mismanaging these resources to the point where privatization seems the only logical response and again where the response should be well if it is mismanaged we need to figure out a better way of managing doesn't seem to be the response the response seems to be government systems can't work public 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 nationalized services state-owned services can't work so we need to privatize them and i think the mistrust in parliament that is being cultivated is of a similar order mm-hmm. to this mismanagement of public resources because you have a a deliberate to my mind at least deliberate bypassing of the state sector uh, a deliberate undermining of the state sector nationally held resources which are in the end accountable in some for- fashion or another to a, a system run by either technocrats or civil servants or populist celebrities, uh, none of which depend on the structures and institutions of democracy in order to function as representatives of of the populace. Yeah. Um, Yeah, the civil service works only insofar as the government is able to direct funds and organize and create legislation that constructs the remit and mandate of the civil service. Otherwise, it functions like a business or it functions like a nonprofit organization or it functions not at all, depending on what branch of it it is. I've I've seen a meme and it's you can see where it's coming from, but it does seem to me to miss the point slightly. Uh, there's a meme that connects the the pro Brexit argument about bringing back control, saying that this is the best way to demonstrate that we've brought back control. That an unelected prime minister asks an unelected hereditary monarch to suspend the seat of democracy, and you can see why discursively it seems like a good argument to make and I, I don't disagree with any of it but I wonder if the contradiction that it is pointing out is not a contradiction because the the position was never about that yeah well yeah and if and and the government and the organization of democracy in Britain when it was set out in the 17th century was that there would be a constitutional monarch and there would be a prime minister who at various points would not be elected as an individual but would always be elected as a member of of a political party. So it's built into the British democratic system that this is always a possibility. Yes. It's by design. And the if if I'm being uh too conspiracy theory about connecting a deliberate mismanagement of the parliamentary system in order to bypass it. I certainly don't think I'm being too conspiracy theory when I say that the right is much better positioned to exploit the 
the design flaws within the democratic system in order to further its agenda than the left is. Yes. It's sort of structurally the right is better able to do that. Yeah, and I think it's it's there's a it's integrated and entwined that relationship that the right designs itself as being kind of able to take advantage of those aspects of democracy, but that the right itself also has constructed those aspects of democracy in and of it to, to protect itself. Yes. In other words, perhaps this is sort of extending it to the point of absurdity, but the right doesn't need the tools of democracy to sustain itself, but the left does. Yeah. And when the right undermines the tools of democracy in the way that it has been in Britain and in America and in India, then the right knows that that undermining won't affect it as much as it will affect the left. Yeah. The left will continue to need democratic tools, whether it's parliament, whether it's local elections, whether it's grassroots democracy, uh, whether it's the kind of democratic socialist model you were talking about earlier. The the left will always need uh, a democratic mandate in order to sustain itself. The right won't. Uh, and therefore to point out the contradictions in representing Brexit as a return of sovereignty and undermining sovereignty at the same time is to miss the point because the the form of sovereignty that the right sees as being repatriated to Britain through Brexit isn't about democracy anyway. Yeah. It was never about democracy. It was about... Uh, Retaining, and, retaining holding wealth and, and, power. and holding wealth and power to a particular class of people, to a particular race of people, uh, and that that's what it that that's what it was always about. And once you have that class of people in government, you don't need parliament anymore. Well, that's nice. One of these days, we're going to do a cheery episode. Someday, someday. It's definitely we- a weird time. It is a very weird time. And there's, I mean, and there's a lot of, of things that we have missed and there's a lot of nuance here that we haven't discussed. So we didn't even mention the resignation of the Scottish Conservative Party leader, Ruth Davidson. No. Um, Scotland is always a wrench in the works here. Um, and, and questions around sovereignty in Scotland and the UK and, you know, you could throw in Northern Ireland and the backstop, you know, for good measure. We haven't mentioned any of that. Yeah. Um, but that is all still here. And I'm, I'm sure Brexit will give us many more opportunities to do episodes. So we'll come back to this. Yeah. Uh, let us know what you think. Um, let us know if any of this chimes with any thoughts you've been having. Rate us, review us. You'll have our Facebook and Twitter uh, links in the in the outro as we as we leave you and we will catch you next time thanks for listening bye bye we hope you enjoyed this episode i have been hannah fitzpatrick and i have been an india rich Audrey. you can contact me on twitter at dr h fitz and me at dr an india r our show is on facebook at state of the theory podcast and on twitter at theory doctors our music is provided by the agrarians and this has been state of the theory thank you Hey